Welcome to the Taylor and Jen podcast. Mornings with Taylor and Jen. We get better sleep and we're basically Vikings. <laughs> That's what you got out of that story? I'm like That you're four. a Viking? I am Thor. There haven't been that many times in my life where I have been so excited about something that I literally got tears in my eyes because I cry a lot, but it's mm-hmm. usually not out of excitement. This time it was excitement. Really? I drove down to Indianola to the beautiful campus of Simpson and I saw the Des Moines Metro Opera's uh, performance of Porgy and Bess. And I went because our friends at the register reminded me that this is Simon Estes's final performance in opera. He's going to retire as an opera singer. That is the end of an era. Simon is 85 years old. Mm hmm. Somebody said, oh, he's a he's an Iowa treasure. He sure is. But he is a national and international treasure, in my opinion. Yeah. I wanted to see his final performance. It did not disappoint. It was fantastic. My favorite part of the show was when Simon's character comes on stage and the place goes wild. Oh, wow. And it's funny because he played a sleazy lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's applaud the sleazy lawyer. But we didn't care because it was Simon Estes. Mm. The performance itself was beautiful. The entire show was just amazing. Simon was so gracious. It was lovely to see. This is the thing that I want to say, though. This is the thing about Simon Estes. When you start talking about Simon Simon Estes. Yes, people talk about the fact that he's a legend, his voice, his presence, his barrier breaking career. But to a letter, Taylor, every single time you talk about Simon Estes, people talk about a man of intense grace mm. and goodness and reverence and faith and his dignity. And I'm like, I wanted to celebrate him as an opera singer, but I also wanted to celebrate him as a beautiful, faith-filled legacy that we can all appreciate. So Jen got to witness history, the final opera run from Simon Estes and Porgy and Bess. It was amazing. What I was really struck by what you said is the way that people talk about Simon Estes, who is one of the most accomplished opera singers ever, is that they talk so much about his character. Yes. And I I feel like that's a little glimpse into heaven. Because the more I read through the Bible, the more I've been struck by the way that God looks at success completely differently than we do. That's true. I mean, there's the verse in 1 Corinthians about, you know, if, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I pray and mountains move, if I give away all my stuff, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Mm. I can have so many results, but if I don't have character, I have nothing. Mm -hmm. And they can all be good results. Like I think sometimes we talk about the fruit of a ministry, like evidence that the Holy Spirit's at work is like how many people are coming to know Jesus? You know, how, how many churches are getting planted? How many wells are being dug in Africa? And all of those are good things. But when the Bible talks about evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in somebody, it's not results. No. It's character. Yes. Love, joy, peace, Mm -hmm. patience, kindness, goodness. All the results are up to God. If you want to look at someone who is successful in the eyes of God, look at their character. Now, I want you to imagine it's bright and early on a Tuesday morning and you are walking into your favorite coffee shop 
to order your favorite coffee drink, however you take it, to help you wake up, okay? Now, are you imagining it with me? I am. All right, here you are. You're walking in, and just as you go to tell your very nice barista what drink you want, a table over to the right just starts making a whole bunch of noise, so much noise, that you have to speak up over the grinding of the coffee, over the typical noise in a coffee house bright and early on a Tuesday morning. And that that noise kind of continues. Now, it's laughter. It is good-natured guffaws. But you cannot communicate with your barista because it is so loud in your coffee house. Now, imagine that table over to the right includes... Taylor and Jen, your favorite morning radio hosts. And we would have correctly described what happened, not this past Tuesday, but the Tuesday before. We kind of got in trouble at a caribou because we were having too much fun. <laughs> we weren't here. We were in another state, thankfully. <laughs> we, we didn't get kicked out, but we were asked to move our conversation to a more volume-friendly locale. They said it just like that, too. That's exactly what they, they were, yeah, we, we can't we can't even hear what people are ordering. You guys need to please move this somewhere else. So we took our coffee and went outside. I gotta say, that's the first time I've been kicked out of a coffee shop. I think it happens so much to us loud kids as we're growing up that we honestly think it's just a part of the soundtrack of our lives. You know the sound I'm talking about. Shh. I can't even tell you how many times I have been shh in my life. Has that happened to you, Kelly? My biggest hushing around age 12, I think I had a two or three year period that any time I stepped into the library, I got hushed. I think they had a poster on the wall of me that it didn't say wanted. It said, she's going to be too loud and her heart is good. (laughs) Her heart is good. I think I just had too much enthusiasm for the library as a middle schooler. (laughs) If I see anybody working at the library, I make eye contact and give them the the nod of, I know I'm supposed to be quiet in here. (laughs) And then I start to laugh and then somebody clears their throat and I get whipped right back into shape of being quiet. You didn't mean anything by it. You're just having a good time. And then you are politely asked to find another place to have so much fun. Okay, you, Taylor, are an introvert. Mm -hmm. When have you ever been loud outside of doing this with me? Jen, it may surprise you to know that I was once one of the loudest cheerers at the high school football games. I am a little bit... You're going to have to convince me. I'm a little bit skeptical about this. My friends and I decided that we were going to be the absolute best football fans at the football games. My dad was the coach. My little brother was the quarterback. And we just wanted to support them so much. Okay. So what does a good fan look like? Uh, Well, obviously, there needs to be a costume. Like, you've seen the Oakland Raiders fans. Oh, yeah. You've seen, like, they get dressed up and they're into it. Not the Oakland Raiders anymore, by the way. Oh, yeah. The Las Vegas Raiders. (laughs) So, So we all managed to find these red jumpsuits, like mechanic jumpsuits, and we got iron-on letters, so we all had our own names on the backs of our jumpsuits. Wow. Did you come up with that all on your own? Uh, it, w- it was a group effort. Did you iron on those things all on your own? No. Okay. No, my, my mother ironed Ringo so onto the back of mine. This was something that your mother sanctioned. 
Yeah. She, she was okay with it. She was on board with it. Okay. And we all had our red jumpsuits and we brought our noisemakers. There were games where we had our faces painted and we learned all of the dances that the cheerleaders would do. And so we'd do the cheers with them as they were going from the stands. We thought we were having a great time until the principal told us that we were cheering too loud near all the parents. <laughs> Near the parents? We were too loud at a football game, <laughs> and the parents couldn't have their nice, wonderful conversations while their children were playing football. So we were asked to move, and then we moved, and then the referees told us that they would throw a penalty on our team if those people in the red jumpsuits continued to cheer as loudly as they did. Wow, Taylor. I was too loud for a high school football I'm game. Imp- <laughs> now, I would maintain that you haven't lived unless you've been shushed. <laughs> At least once, because I've spent a good portion of my 29 and a half years on this world being shushed at one time or another. I mean, my mother was a librarian. Of all the places to be shushed, I get getting shushed in a library. I got shushed at a high school football game. I was too loud for the stands at a high school football game in Texas. You and others. Your your little crew of people was too loud. We were too loud for people to focus. And uh, Lori, that's uh, triggering a memory. Taylor, just want to say thank you so much for making me feel better after all these years. I almost got kicked out of a basketball game. Really? Yelling too loud. You? You always talk to yes. us so quietly. <laughs> yeah. No, I have a very loud voice. Oh, <laughs> yay! So what, what were you yelling about? I was going defense, defense, or the girls' basketball team. Uh-huh. The scorekeepers couldn't hear the refs because of me yelling. <laughs> <laughs> I am so impressed with you, you right now. You are an excellent tool for the defense. My daughter was a cheerleader, too, at the time. <laughs> wow. So what, what did your daughter have to say about that? She was embarrassed. She said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> We're not great at waiting, are we? No, I stand in front of a microwave and tell it to hurry. We have a society that in a lot of ways it's been beneficial that we can make things happen really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yep. We can find information so fast. And the interesting thing that's happened with information is as we have had more information, we have found it harder to get deeply into truth. Explain. I've been reading this book. It's called After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda. Fantastic book. His subtitle is How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Mm. And he pointed us to how we have a culture that has just eliminated wait times. And so when we start going through these deep questions of our faith, we can find very quick answers to those questions. But it turns out Sometimes an answer that you have to you don't have to wait for isn't quite as satisfying. It doesn't fill you up or maybe it's not even that true. Sounds like a cheap. Maybe it's like a cheap answer. I mean, what did people do when they didn't have Google? Well, and that's the thing he pointed out in the New Testament. You have so many of the Apostle Paul's writings and these were letters like it's not like he came and gave a sermon and all these people heard all these answers right away. In many cases, this was a church had written a letter to Paul and then Paul wrote a letter back. But in between that time, you didn't have UPS, you didn't have FedEx, you had a dude who's going to run this letter to somebody and I hope I can find him. Mm. And so think about this church who has a burning question about faith. They write this letter and then they wait. Wow. What do they do while they wait? Well, maybe they're turning to prayer. They're asking God to give them wisdom in the meantime. Maybe they turn to each other and say, you know what? We can't agree right now, but we want this answer to pull us together. And so they turn to God and they turn to each other and they wait and they wait and they wait for this answer. 
And it's almost like by the time Paul's letter gets back to them, their hearts have been prepared to receive that answer. And I think sometimes when we have these deep questions about faith, we need to be comfortable sitting with those questions for longer than the 30 seconds it takes us to Google the answer. Because in that waiting time, God does something really powerful in our hearts. So don't be afraid of questions that don't resolve immediately. So I walk out my back door and there I see my dog standing on the roof of our detached garage. What? How old is Echo? He's 16 weeks old and he's standing on the roof of our detached garage. He's just a puppy! So the the thing about our house, we've got this detached garage that's built into a hill. Yeah. So there's a spot where, I mean, if I need to do the gutters, I don't even need a ladder. I just walk up the hill and walk onto the roof. Yep, yep. Apparently, so can Echo. Oh, my goodness. And so we've seen him do this a couple times. Unfortunately, when you call his name, he doesn't, like, jump off the highest point to you. He goes back around down the hill. Yet. But it's still a little scary. Yes, it is. And so I look at this and I make a mental note. Got to, like, build some sort of fence or something so he can't get back there. But in the meantime, you know, we've got other projects and stuff. And so we're like, okay, we'll, we'll get to that. Fast forward a couple days. My wife, Lindsay, is getting ready for work in the morning. Echo's outside playing, or so she thinks, because then she hears our neighbor screaming Lindsay's name through the open window. Lindsay's like, what's going on? She comes outside, and there's our neighbor holding Echo in her arms. Because... Our next door neighbor shares a driveway with us. She also has a detached garage, which is maybe like a couple feet away from the the roofs of each other. So Echo got on top of the roof of our garage, hopped over to the roof of our neighbor's garage. Oh, my goodness. And then went down the hill that their garage is built into. Oh, my word. It ended up in her yard. Found our neighbor who was currently (laughs) gardening, which is good news because her yard isn't fenced in. Oh, my goodness gracious. We have a little escape artist and now we have a little bit of a landscaping project to do to make sure our dog can't do that anymore. Taylor, lean your head towards me here just a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think I might see a gray hair. Oh. I think your puppy is giving you gray hairs. (laughs) He is a little escape artist. He can climb on the roof of our garage and use that to jump onto our neighbor's garage and jump into her backyard. Oh, my goodness. So, please make me feel better. Tell me about the escape artists in your life. When I was growing up, my siblings and I had cows, and we had a calf named Laura, and Laura was an escape artist. Really? Um, <laughs> wow! Yes. I wasn't expecting something that big. We had a fence right behind our house where the cows were living, and Laura got out three to four times a day. Wow! Eating out in the yard, eating my mom's flowers, oh. and my little brother <laughs> was just learning to talk, and he would sit at the window and he'd say, Laura's out. How hard is it to get an escaped calf back in the enclosure? She was pretty tame, so we would literally just walk out into her yard, say, Laura, yell at her, and she'd go back in. (laughs) We want to know about the escape artists in your life. What's your escape artist, Sarah? It is a hamster who learned how to chew her way out of her cage and then would literally do like monkey bars on the top of the cage and get out. Oh my goodness! One time, I came home after a long night uh, of work, got into my bed, picked up my blanket off the floor, and my sister's hamster had escaped earlier that day, and I didn't know it. So as I was laying in bed, something fuzzy started running across my leg. Oh, boy. It was awful. I screamed. Then I figured out what it was, and I screamed at my sister for a while. 
Hey, Mike, you've got a story about an escape artist? Me and my old roommate, we used to live on the south side of Des Moines, and she had a husky, and she was still quite young at this time. We had left the sliding glass door open, but the screen was shut. Oh. That didn't really stop her, unfortunately, <laughs> because she, she took the screen completely off of the tracks, bolted out through the door, screen went flying into the yard. Fast forward a couple of minutes of chasing her, and uh, a police car pulls up next to me, and he's laughing, and he says, is that your dog? <laughs> and of course, I'm out of breath chasing this dog. I mean, she's taunting me at this point, just yeah. like sitting around waiting for me to catch her and then running off again. <laughs> so he takes off after her. He goes after her for a couple of minutes. He gets her cornered at kind of the end of a street. Uh, she's tired. I'm tired. He's laughing. Gets her into the back of the squad car. Uh, pulls up next to me and says, do you want to ride back? <laughs> at this point, I, I was just so defeated. And I said, yeah, thank you, please. Uh, and he said, well, you'll have to ride in the back because the doors up here are locked. <laughs> so, and her, I've got a picture. Me and her sitting in the back of the top car, riding back to our apartment. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, this is the only time you're ever going to catch me in the back of a car. <laughs> so it's not a secret that anxiety is on the rise with younger people, mm -hmm. kids and teenagers. It's not a secret, but maybe we should talk about it more. I and think it can be hard. Like if you're not going through anxiety where you, you look at your child and you're like, why are you so stressed about this? Right. Stuff? There's no reason to be like it. And, and the thing is, there is something different about their brain than yours. So it's not going to make a whole lot of sense from the outside. So if you are a parent and you have a child that is dealing with anxiety, we have a wonderful resource. Her name is Jean Holthouse. She wrote a book specifically about this. It's called When Anxiety Roars. And we did have the opportunity to talk with her. And she gave us some great advice on how to understand your teen who's going through anxiety. You can get educated. You can find resources. I mean, don't use the Internet as like, you know, Dr. Google is not always nope. a great thing. But there's also lots of great resources out there from like NAMI, um, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, that can give you information and a kind of understanding of what it's like for children and how that's different. Even asking a therapist, a lot of employers have EAP programs where you could check in with a therapist and say, OK, just help me understand what this would be like for my child. And let us know what EAP stands for. Uh, sorry, employee Assistance fund yes. programs. Mm -hmm. So a lot yeah. of employers have that. It's a free resource it to is. you. It's great. Usually, usually you can get three to four yep. sessions for completely mm -hmm. free with a therapist, yeah. and that's really nice. And you can just do some bouncing off of somebody like that. Churches oftentimes have great resources for understanding those things as well. Mm -hmm. um, you can get books and materials and listen to your child. Like, mm. what is their experience? Because oftentimes they can describe what it feels like when they're anxious. Versus when they're not anxious, particularly as they begin to work on it a little bit, they can get language for it and they can yeah. tell you. Anxiety in children and teenagers, it is definitely on the rise. And if you are the parent of a child that is dealing with that, I know you, like like me, want to do the best thing for that child. So when I read in Jean Holdhouse's book, When Anxiety Roars, that I'm supposed to partner with my daughter rather than parent my daughter... I, I didn't quite know what that meant, and I wanted to talk to Jean about that. So fortunately, when she was here, we were able to ask her, okay, what do you mean by partnering with a child with anxiety versus trying to parent them? And it doesn't mean you don't parent. It's okay. more about how you parent. 
Because if you're going to be the person that the kid is on one side and you're on the other side telling the child what to do, then you become the person that they're going to have the argument with Mm. rather than anxiety being the thing that they're having the argument with. So you're going to become a team with them. They got to know, first of all, that you get it. I mean, think about the last argument you had with a significant other in your world until you felt like they got where you were. They really weren't willing to move out of that position. And until kids know we get where they're at and how like this is real, you're really feeling that afraid. Okay, so now let's together make a strategy because we don't want anxiety to win. Mm. And then we become the cheerleaders and the coaches believing they can do it and cheering them on as they do it rather than the dictator. Talking with Jean Holthouse, author of When Anxiety Roars, about anxiety in children, in teens. And one thing is, I think our kids, probably adults too, when you eventually tell people, yes, I deal with extreme anxiety or an anxiety disorder, I think sometimes they worry that they will become their diagnosis. Or you can even use it like, I know for me, sometimes if I'm having an anxiety day, it's like, well, that's just me. That's my anxiety acting up Uh, rather than trying to do something about it. Okay. And so we wanted uh, some help from Gene Holthouse. How can we help our kids not to feel trapped and defined by their diagnosis and also how to not use it as an excuse to get out of doing things? It's helpful to externalize it. Anxiety is something that's outside of you that's impacting you rather than it is you. Like your personality is not anxiety. It's similar to a virus that invades, Mm. right? We wouldn't call ourselves a cold. So helping them to see it as an illness that's invading and trying to take up space and we're going to fight back and fight it off. And we're going to find some really good coping strategies to do that. We're going to get medication if we need. We're going to do the things that fight it off. But it's like a virus or any other illness that's attempting to invade and take up space Mm -hmm. rather than it's who I am. And kind of helping them to see that in the book, I use the illustration of defining anxiety as a lion, because lions are big, scary things in kids' lives, mm. particularly little kids. And so it helps them to say, oh, but I could become a lion tamer. I oh. control it in the end, kind of helping them to get that picture. For little kids, you can use something like that. For adolescents, it's helping them see it more as an illness than as who they are. When Anxiety Roars, it's the name of a book by our friend Jean Holthouse, and It kind of does that, doesn't it? It Mm -hmm. roars. And whether you are the individual that is dealing with the anxiety or the parent of a child, it can be scary. And maybe you're watching your child and you're saying, this child isn't going through anything more than I went through at their age. So why are they more anxious than I ever was? Why are some people more prone to this? than other people are. Genetically, some of us come more sensitively wired up. Mm -hmm. um, So we're more affected emotionally by the things around us than others. And some of us, our biology just doesn't work as well as others. I always tell my kids they get to blame my family tree for all of the mental health issues because, boy, they're there. Um, And they get to blame their dad for all the teeth issues, right? (laughs) I I read that that in the book. I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) We just genetically come with some stuff. Yeah. And then the environments that were raised in, um, my two children are two years apart, which meant that their early life experiences weren't the same early life experiences and it affected mm. them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a boy and a girl. So when they went to school, different things happened. All of those stressors also impact because when as you stress the system, if it's going to give way in some place, those places where we're not genetically wired up as strongly give way. So for some people, that's depression. 
For some people, that's anxiety. For some people, their body physically catches colds at the drop of a hat. Like we all have ways that when we're stressed, our body says enough. Now your kids probably have them. Security items, favorite little toys, favorite little things that they have to have with them. They won't get in the car without them. They won't go to church without them. They won't go anywhere. Those little security items. But think about it. As a grown-up, you probably have one too. When I was younger, my grandmother made me this duck blanket. And any major surgeries that I've had, I brought it with me. It is now quite literally um, broken pieces tied into a knot that I still take with if one of my daughters has surgery or whatever. And um, they have a blanket from Grandma. They don't seem to care about the blanket. (laughs) But um, when my daughter's father and I separated that was the one thing that i i held on to because she doesn't seem to care about it and Mm -hmm. it just made the days without her a little bit easier so the blankies from grandma are our family little sentiment that we take everywhere with us even as a grown-up it helps you even as a ratted knot now (laughs) i think my husband has told me to throw it away a couple times i'm like you don't understand i can't throw it away no no no. don't ever throw it away I think security is important to most of us, if not all of us. I think one of the most beautiful forms of security is friendship. I mean, how secure are you with those true friends in your life? When you find the people who you don't have to put on the filter. Yeah. And you can just be yourself and know that you're safe to say whatever it is you're feeling. And they know you Mm -hmm. and they accept you and they love you. I have been blessed with some of the most amazing friends in the world. They came to me later in life. I Mm -hmm. I literally had to get down on my knees and pray for friends (laughs) because at one point I felt like I had none. Um, But God gave me a group of women that are just fantastic. And I lost one of them a little over a year ago to cancer. One of her last gifts to me was a charm for my necklace. Mm -hmm. I wear it every single day. Right next to it is a charm that I got on a big birthday from another group of my girlfriends. I call them the posse. They are my sisters. And I deliberately put both of those charms on the same necklace so I can carry them with me every day. I I very rarely take this necklace off. Mm-hmm. I almost always have it because then I have Laura and the posse with me. And as I was looking at that picture of my kiddos this morning with their little security toys that they were taking to their first day of school, I realized, yeah, I'm not so different than they are. When you were a child, maybe it was your favorite stuffed animal or a blanket or, you know, even younger, maybe it was the best pacifier around. That's right. Binkies. Yeah. We all had those security items and you think you outgrow them, but you really don't. We just have different ones as grown-ups, different things that without it you feel lost. Maybe you can't even sleep if it's somewhere else. And I realized as we were having this conversation that Lindsay and I both have a security item that we have to take with us anytime we are traveling. Really? I realized this. We can't sleep if we leave it at home because from the very start of our marriage... We have had his and hers blankets. We didn't want to have the fight over you're hogging the covers and pulling them back and forth in the night. And so from the very beginning, we have both had our very own blankets. We sleep so much better because of it. And if we leave our very own blankets at home and we have to stop in a hotel or something... 
It's a problem, Jen. Oh, it is a problem. Okay. So I would say those are kind of security blankets. It's like a little piece of home. I've got a little bit of a rabbit trail. Okay. This, this is free. This All is right, free. Just so you know. The way that you guys do it with each having your own blanket, mm-hmm. that is called the Norwegian way of sleeping because in oh. Norway, it's just common practice for couples that share a bed to uh-huh. each have their own blanket. Wow. And statistically, they sleep way better than Americans do. So we get better sleep and we're basically Vikings. <laughs> We're Norwegians. <laughs> That's what you got out of that story? I'm like That you're Thor. a Viking? <laughs> I am Thor. So what are the things that you can accomplish with great faith? Wow. Um, doesn't Hebrew say pretty much anything? Like, I think about my high school English teacher. She had so much faith. It was like, if she prayed for it, it was going to happen. Oh, that's really amazing to meet somebody like that. You know, that. you think about the person who steps out in faith and they're able to start a new business and it just flourishes and they just trusted that God was going to take care of them. You always admire those people. And there is, you talked about Hebrews, like it has this passage called the Hall of Faith. Yeah. And it talks about all these people who like Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he became the father of many nations. But you go on and there's also passages about these people who trusted God with faith. And uh, Hebrews 1138 says they wandered the earth, living in the desert wilderness, in caves, on barren mountains and in holes in the earth. Ooh. Wow. And here's what Hebrews says about him. Truly, the world was not even worthy of them. Wow. What does that mean? Isn't that crazy? It's great faith doesn't always mean great results. And I think the beautiful thing here is so often it's easy to think like, because I have great faith, I've had great success. But even if you've had great faith to no success, even if you're in a place where you feel like you have all the faith you need and you're wandering the wilderness, you're living in a hole in the ground, God still sees that. He's actually crediting that to you as righteousness because I think sometimes it's easier to have great faith when the miracle's happening than it is to have great faith when you're living in a hole in the ground. Great faith is something that is very difficult to do, but I do believe it may be its own reward. The Taylor and Jen podcast is a product of Northwestern Media, a ministry of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can hear more from Taylor and Jen weekday mornings online at life1071.com or on the Life 107.1 app.